Test. One, two, three. Welcome to the Life in the Sun Lane podcast. Uh, this is your host, Nick, the moderator. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone back. Uh, if this is your first time joining, welcome. This is a podcast about centrist politics, uh, maybe moderate politics, you take your pick, and, um, and veterans' issues. Uh, so this is our second episode of our reset, and these will be more frequent as we go forward. My last episode, I discussed some of the thoughts I had about Thanksgiving and some of the tropes I've seen uh, from the left about Thanksgiving. Um, now, what I'd like to do actually today is uh, discuss something that's been in my mind for quite some time. By quite some time, I mean about a month now. Um, and this is something that has to do with the budget and uh, how we as Americans spend money and really how modern countries spend money. Um, uh, and this might sound kind of boring, but I think once we get into it, it'll make a lot of sense. So for my work, I travel the world a lot, uh, and I get to see countries from every spectrum, from the extremely wealthy to the extremely impoverished. And then extremely impoverished, but very much more impoverished than, than Western countries are. Um, and that translates into standard of living and what you can expect from uh, the industries and the countries that I go to. And, and something as basic as the infrastructures are different and like, the roads are different. And as you might imagine, the more wealthy countries have better road systems, and the more impoverished countries uh, have road systems which are in a higher, a, a lower level of development. Sometimes, not always. And um, <clears throat> I, I think in this country and in the West in general, we're re- we're kind of going into the situation where we're allowing our infrastructure to decline uh, as we don't want to pass the large spending bills needed to fix it. And one of the reasons we do that is because we have this idea of a budget uh, and, and of government policy, and we have to balance the budget. And this idea of balancing a budget um, is, is kind of this what I'll term as an austerian viewpoint, uh, that we have to reach some form of austerity in order to pay for things, which is a fine way to think about it. And I think historically we have always thought about it like this. Historically, it makes sense. Um, and, and if you think about it from the perspective of gold, right, a country had to have gold. That was what it used, or silver, some other precious metal as its basis for its currency, if it had paper currency, or it would have coinage, and it had to pay the workers in the coinage, and there was a limited amount of that coinage. So it had to tax the people to make the money, to collect, to have the coinage, to be able to pay people to work for it, which is, you know, a completely normal way to think about things, and that's how finances would work in theory for a long time uh, in, in the way, really across the world. This is kind of the basic understanding of what we have for government spending. And it's that basic understanding that we have now still, uh, that in order to spend cash to buy new roads, we have to tax people to collect the money to pay for those roads, which I guess makes sense, right? If you think about it, you uh, or me, if we don't have the money, we use a credit card and we have to pay that money back and, and that credit back in the form of uh, interest plus, plus principal. Therefore, it's always more expensive to buy things on a credit card. And it makes sense for a government, too, if you think about it like that. Um, but that's not how governments work if they can print their own money and they don't base the money's value 
on gold or some other random precious metal. Um, and actually, uh, that's how we've been for a very long time. We went off the gold standard long ago, and we have what we called fiat currency at current. Um, and I, I want to kind of give you there's no there's no backing for our currency, right? This is a this is a really good question going forward, and one you th- should think about heavily. What is the value of money? Now you can say it's well, it's whatever, it's whatever, you know, the country says it is. Okay, so it's a dollar. Let's just say it's a dollar. A dollar is worth what? Think about that for just a second. What is a dollar or a hundred dollars worth? Now you're probably thinking right now in your head of what you could buy with it, which I guess is some equivalency you're trying to come up with if you had a barter system. But it, you know, cash is fungible or currency is fungible. But um, what is a dollar worth? What is its backing? What supports it? The answer is really nothing. The answer, in reality, comes down to some aggregation of the entire value of the um, of the country's system that it comes from, the economy of the system that it comes from. And if a country prints its own currency, or, you know, we say print, but that's a, probably the wrong word for it. If it creates numbers inside of electronic banking accounts that banks then draw from to hand out, lend money out to its, their, their constituents or the, to their clients, um, then then the value of the money in the system is the value of the goods that it can buy in the system. And the value of those is determined by the, the strength of the economy, which I know is an extremely complex thing to think about. And, you know, at this point, you can stop the podcast, take about 30 minutes, and just spend some time chewing on this thought because it's, it's, it is a complex thought to go through. It's not one that's simple. But <clears throat> once we have fiat currency, which we do, I want to ask you another question, and this one's not the way going to go the way I think you expect it to. What comes first, spending or tax? Now, if you say, well, the tax has to come first, you've got to pay for the spending. Okay, let's play that game. In order for a government currency to get into the system to be taxed, how does it get there? Through what mean or method? What does it do? It has to spend the money first to get the money in the system. And then from there, it can collect the tax. It can collect the tax. Therefore, a government is in a modern government and with fiat currency is almost always, by definition, running a deficit. It has to. It has to run a deficit. If it doesn't run a deficit, what happens? Well, then it recollects the money, and the money goes back to itself. And since it borrowed the money from itself in the form of a bond, uh, where does the money go? Well, it goes away. You, When modern countries in, in the modern world, if they're running debts in their own currencies, then the debt that comes back in, if they have a surplus, the money that comes back in just gets thrown away, in essence. It, it's, it, it pays a bond which is owned by another government institution. I'll give you an example of this. The way that Social Security 
uh, funds itself is through T-bills, right? And, and everyone says, well, I pay into it. Okay, that's fine. You pay into it. We'll, pretend, we'll play this game. You pay into it, and then it goes into the system, and then it goes in, into the bank in the system. That's not really how it works, though. How it really works, it goes in the system uh, as, a, as, a, as a credit in the system uh, that is then sent back out to banks, in essence, uh, in order for them to make to loan more money out. Well, a long time ago, we decided to take money out of this uh, out of this bank that we had built up uh, of Social Security payments and use it to fund other parts of the government, and we replace those with IOUs, Treasury bills. Okay, those IOUs gain interest, and then we pay back into those IOUs as interest, right? Um, and then that goes into our debt every year. If you look at the total government budget, you can see that there is a large portion of it that goes to interest on that debt and repaying the debt. Well, that's where that comes from. <laughs> that interest comes from that. It gets paid back into the Social Security Fund. A lot of it gets paid back into the Social Security Fund, which keeps Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid kind of solvent in this equation. And solvent's probably the bad word to use, but that's that's the way we view it in an austere world. We view it as you have to have some way to pay out the system. But in reality, you don't. Um... And in in reality, you don't have to do any of that. Uh, and it's actually quite confusing when you think about it from a government perspective because it makes its own money. It actually has to. I mean, so it, it the, in this case, the treasury uh, creates the currency and puts – it just adds extra numbers in an account and flips them over. And then it takes in currency from banks because you pay your – Taxes, most likely not in cash, you pay them through your bank account. So the banking institution sends a credit back to the Federal Reserve and to the Treasury, to the Treasury, which then credits it back to the Federal Reserve. Um, and, and, and then it could hand those credits back out to banks at a later date or put them back into their own IOUs, which are owned by the Federal Reserve or the Treasury, depending on which way it's going, how it's being funded. So this whole thing of internal governmental debt really doesn't exist in the sense uh, anything other than financial instruments, the bonds that they're, they're backed by, the treasury bills, the IOUs. So the IOUs are backed by, in essence, more IOUs is how it really comes out, and then the revenue of the United States government. But <clears throat> the United States government, any government that has its own currency, doesn't actually have to balance the budget. And actually, it's kind of a folly to do it. When you balance the budget or when you have a surplus, what you end up doing is you're taking currency out of the system. You're taking money out of the system. And in a country like ours where we have a population that's growing um, and more people are looking for you know, employment, and we had extremely high unemployment. Now we're down to fairly little unemployment at around 4%. Uh, even though the labor participation rate is much lower than it had been prior to the Great Recession in 20, uh, 2008. So the full employment of the, of the population probably has not occurred yet, even though we have a higher or lower level unemployment. You know, those statistics work. You can go through that all day long, and I encourage you to, to take a look at that. But what it really comes down to is if you don't have a job, that does not mean you're not that, – that does not mean you go in the unemployment statistic. Unemployment statistic means you've been looking for a job. You are looking for a job or have been for, I think it's under a year, maybe six months. After that, you fall off the unemployment statistic and you go into another bin called without a job, not in the labor participation rate statistic. It's a completely different statistic. Um, and uh, reality is that 
we have a large portion of the population that is still unemployed or less employed, underemployed is most likely the term we need to use, underemployed. And there's a couple reasons for that, but we can talk about them later. But some of that is if you haven't had a job in three or four years because the Great Recession wiped you out and, and you used to be, let's say, insert random thing here, uh, let's say you were um, you know, a radiation techno technologist. I'm just going to use that for example. I know there's a shortage of those, but let's pretend there's not. There's a surplus. Um, and you lost your job and you're out of your position for four years and you took a job as an Uber driver. Four years later, it's not exactly easy to go back into the, your initial field because you've been an Uber driver for X, Y, Z number of years. And, and it, that's, that's the problem we have now. We kind of get into that system. We have human capital, which we're talking about uh, is it, it, the value to the free market is extremely limited once it reaches a certain time out of that system. Uh, and we actually punish people who's been, who've been unemployed for a long period of time or even a short period of time for not getting a job. There's something about it that the private sector has like a bad stink about it and just won't do it. So um, well, the thing I'm discussing now, though, is, is, is an idea called modern monetary theory. And, and this is exactly what I'm explaining is that, in essence, the United States does not have to run a surplus. Actually, running a surplus is bad because we take money out of the system. And if there's less money in the system, there's less money to go around, which eventually leads to what we know as the business cycle, the boom and bust cycle, right? Where you have you have a recession, and then we have a bunch of federal spending because we pretend that that's a good thing um, and for only a short period of time. Of course, we have a bunch of federal spending, and then we dump. Uh, a bunch of new money in the system, and then that brings the system back up over a few months to a few years, and all of a sudden now we have we, we go from a recession to a growth cycle. We hit two or three percent growth, and we say, oh, we need to start taxing more. We start taking money. A tax is taking money out of the system. Right, that's what we're doing, taking money out of the system to repay a debt inside the government, which doesn't go back out. It just goes back in the government's coffers, which don't get spent because they have a big debt. In theory. And and then it 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 creates usually has a deflationary effect, um, and then it starts to reduce free capital for businesses to operate, and they start lowering prices, and they start running deficits, and then they start going under, which causes them to cut employees because they can no longer afford to pay them because there's less money to be made in the system, and they go back down into recession. So this is a cycle we've known for our entire lives. We've we've thought of this as is like normal. Okay, we can hit a We'll hit a bus cycle and we'll go back through. And yes, there are times when a bus cycle would have occurred anyway. 2008 is one of those times when a bunch of really bad bets and a, and a bunch of what should have been illegal or things that have been regulated much more tightly on Wall Street through synthetic CDOs uh, and, and credit defaults while CDSs um, occurred on a level which is just unimaginable since it was larger than the value of the entire currency of the world. The entire monetary value of the world was less than the amount of money being traded on Wall Street to insure or secure certain debts, which just by itself is on face is is absurd. So um, in, in this equation, what ends up happening, we go to the cycle and then we have to spend more money. Now this is Keynesian theory, is that you spend more money to pull yourself out of the cycle. 
Now you can go back and look at some Austrian theorists who want to go back to hard currency, which I think, which means it's backed by gold, which means the limited amount of something. So if you lose it or it gets stolen, or let's say that your population increases, everyone gets a little more poor depending on the ratio of gold to people. So if I improve the amount of gold by one ounce a year, but I improve the people by 10 a year, then those new people that come in, new population, have less gold to go around. And if you can hoard the money and become extremely wealthy, um, well, then you can loan the money out and you create, in essence, a, a group of pauper farmers or pauper employees, which then leads to revolution. You can look. You know, it doesn't usually end well when you end up in a hard currency idea because you end up with massive levels of inequality, which lead to usually some form of revolution or social upheaval, which is not what you want to have. So what is the value of what I'm telling you now, right? This, this can be a lot of very verbose to say this. We can and should spend far more money than we are at the federal level now. That doesn't mean we have to expand the federal government. I know the first thing people that we're going to expand means we're going to have more government. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean, though, is we should have institutions. We should be building new infrastructure. There's no reason in the United States that we do not have a high-speed train route that runs from Boston to Miami on the East Coast. There's no reason. None. Maybe we can talk about some of the uh, ecological issues we've got to work, worry about and sound. Okay, so EPA comes in and takes some time to work through those regulatory processes, and I get that. But uh, from a funding perspective, from a funding perspective, there is zero reason why we should not be spending $500 billion a year to build massive amounts of infrastructure across this country. The only reason you do it, the only reason you wouldn't do it or shouldn't do it, is if your corporations or your sector that is, that is in this environment is already at 100% capacity. Right? If you have everyone employed and you're 100% capacity, that's when you stop government spending. So, in that sector, in the infrastructure building sector, if all those, all those companies are fully employed and there's no excess capacity to build anything else, that's when we say, okay, you know what? We don't need, at this point, we have to kind of ratchet it back because that's when you create inflation, which I know you've been waiting on this I word to come out. What happens if we spend $500 billion a year on infrastructure on top of what we're already spending? Then how in the world do we not have inflation? What happened? How, how, why is there no inflation? I want you to realize something when I say that, because this is the first thing that's going to come up. If, if you think this is accurate, and you think I'm telling you the truth, is that even if you don't, if you listen to this, and you say, well, okay, this guy's not even talking about inflation. He's an idiot. The most common examples given for inflation are uh, Weimar Germany. Germany in the 1920s after World War I has hyperinflation, and it's comical. You can look at some of the images. It's people pushing money around in wheelbarrows to go buy individual things. There's this tragic story of a... Um, must have been a retiree or near retiree, um, a 40 or 50 year old uh, in Germany in the 20s. And uh, his pension allowed him, his entire yearly pension allowed him to buy one ticket on uh, one of the trains around the city he was at. I think it was Frankfurt. I might be wrong. Um, but he, he bought the ticket, uh, rode around in a circle uh, on, to view the city one last time, uh, and then hung himself uh, at, the, at the station. Um, uh, because the times are so desperate, right? 
How do we avoid that? The other one that's used is Venezuela. Venezuela has hyperinflation. How can we, how can we possibly do what you're saying, Nick, and spend all this extra currency, have unlimited debt spending, um, if if we are, you know, if we're not going to be Venezuela? And the other one uses Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, how you know Zimbabwe had a hundred trillion dollar note. I actually have that that bank note. It's pretty neat. Hundred trillion dollar note. And they had it because it was, it was worthless currency, right? It didn't mean it wasn't didn't have any value. How can we prevent those things from happening? Um, and, and how can you argue what you're arguing without expecting that to happen? Uh, a couple things here. The other one that will come up uh, in maybe a more technical term is if you reach over a certain debt-to-GDP ratio, then uh, you can't sell bonds because the bonds become a, a lesser value. Okay, so let's talk about all of these, right? Weimar Germany is a unique situation and uh, that – the German government had to pay back war debts to the, the allies, mainly France, in the form of gold, uh, foreign currency, or industrial output. Okay? So we don't have that problem. We can get into how that it's terrible for your economy to have to pay out a massive debt in another currency because now you're basing your your economy off their economy. If they have a stronger economy, you have a world of hurt. Uh, you can look at Greece having debts in euro as a put or in dollars, uh, or Argentina having debts in dollars. Right? Those are terrible things that can happen to an economy and just ruin an economy for generations. Um, same thing. That's what happened to Weimar Germany, right? Okay. So here's the next one. Uh, we're not Weimar Germany, so let's skip that one, or skip it. But realize that's not a reality you live in. Uh, Zimbabwe. Okay, so Zimbabwe hit this issue because uh, they their entire economy relied on their farming, their agriculture sector. After the civil war they had and the revolution, uh, Robert Mugabe thought it would be a genius idea to take his soldiers and give them all the land of the farmers. Now, the farmers at this point, there's a racial aspect to this. The farmers at this point were the former minority government, the uh, apartheid government in, in what used to be called Rhodesia. Uh, and they were you know, owned huge tracts of land, so they they kicked all those farmers off their land, sent them to the United States or to Australia or to Canada or Great Britain, um, told them to leave the country. You're no longer Zimbabwean citizens. Took all their land, re, re, uh, reappropriated it for the, the 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 majority population, the African population, uh, and gave it to them. The problem with that is the people they gave it to weren't farmers, and you know it, it's it's. It's one thing if you want to create equity in your society, as you, you know, it's probably a good thing to try to lower inequality in your society, prevent revolution. Um, but if you decide to destroy the economic engine of your country, well, you're going to destroy your economy. And this is what happened. So they destroyed the economy. So they could not export goods of, of any consequence. All they could do is import goods. And since if you borrow, if, if, I, if I try to, borrow or uh, money or try to give out my own currency to a, a, a neighbor country so that they can uh, send their stuff to me. Or let's pretend you're a farmer in South Africa and you just send your goods to Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwean government or the, the people there pay you in Zimbabwean dollars. Uh, well, if there's nothing I can buy there, then your currency doesn't mean anything to me. It, it's, it is a useless currency. And it, this is what caused the, the hyperinflation there is because, well, I can't buy anything because, because I don't produce anything. So my economy is just completely trashed. Venezuela is a very similar situation in which uh, the government there um, went insane and elected to 
uh, take the world's most valuable resource and squander it uh, in, in oil and uh, pay out huge sums of money to their um, lackeys in the military uh, and stop all internal production, take over the free market system, replace it with a kind of socialistic, socialistic system that really it was more like a um, system of thievery, which then drove all the, all the, the corporations who own the infrastructure to leave uh, and, and to abandon their infrastructure there, uh, just write it off as a loss. The Venezuelan government had no idea what to do with it, tried to use it, but didn't know what it was doing, didn't have the same logistical apparatus, so its exports collapsed outside of its natural resources, um, which meant their internal economy began to collapse, which, you know, economic collapse does not um, come because of hyperinflation. Hyperinflation comes comes because of economic collapse. So, you know, don't get the two confused. The German economy in the 1920s didn't collapse because of hyperinflation. German economy collapsed and then hyperinflation occurred. Same thing in Zimbabwe and the same thing in, in, um, in Venezuela. Now, if you want to talk about some other ones, we can look at some other areas of hyperinflation um, uh, that happened in the 1940s in Eastern Europe when the Soviets occupied those countries and created artificial hyperinflation uh, in order to put communist governments in power through elections and then uh, then you know create the Eastern Bloc out of it. So that's a whole different uh, conversation we can have. Now that we've had that inflation discussion, let's talk about why this won't cause inflation. It won't cause inflation, and we have evidence that it won't. This is not just some like Nick Lowry theory here or some theory that's coming out of academia uh, at random. Um, I want you to look at the inflation rates of Japan, and I want you to look at the inflation rates of Europe, uh, kind of Europe, but really in the United States, right, since 2008. The inflation rates in the United States in 2008 have been anemically low, and we've been trying to get them up, and we really can't. It's very difficult. You say, okay, well, we've been running deficits that whole time. We've been running deficits that whole time. That's true. We've also done quantitative easing, which is the artificial creation of trillions of dollars in, in new currency. You don't print it. No one prints money anymore. That's such an old idea. You just... You know, electronically add another zero to the account, and voila, you've created an extra, you know, 10 power of, of currency. Or you add a five, or whatever you had to do, right? But you just create an extra 10, 20, 30, in this case, trillions of dollars in new value in the currency. And what's happened? Have we seen hyperinflation? We've added trillions of, of dollars that have not been due bonds. There's no bond, that, there's, no, there's no note, that, there's no debt that comes out of them. So if we created trillions of new dollars, where do they go? Where do those trillions go? How do they work? I'm confused. So I thought I thought if we did trillions of dollars, we would have hyperinflation. Why didn't we have it? Well, we didn't have it because the economy wasn't at full employment. We didn't have it because we had a lot of extra slack in the economy, right? I could still, if I had more money, hire more people to do more stuff who can buy more things later. I could still create a positive feedback loop. I could still do that in the system. You have inflation once you can't do that in the system or you have some external issue you have like paying a, you know, a massive war debt to a foreign country. But if you don't have that, that massive war debt, if, if, you, if you are free to go, then you can spend until you have full employment. 
Now, if you put money in some sectors and not others, you're going to create inflation in those sectors, right? If you put a whole bunch of money uh, in a sector that's already at or near capacity, you'll create inflation there. Uh, so that's probably not a good idea. So what role do taxes have? What, what, what's the purpose of taxes? The way that the modern monetary theorists, MMT uh, professors uh, and academics talk about taxes is almost, well, it is, as a tax credit. Uh, or cash is really a tax credit. It's a tax or tax credit. That doesn't make any sense. Cash is a tax credit. Your currency is just a tax credit. Taxes are just there to help equalize the playing field and prevent the hoarding of capital by some members of society. Right? This is the whole idea behind having a trillion dollar, you know, ha- having the first trillionaire if that ever happened. We're having, you know, hundreds of billionaires which don't pay taxes because they put their money in offshore accounts. We don't really have to tax them. I mean, at the end of the day, their currency going offshore doesn't really matter because we can create more currency. And uh, and you say this inflationary and devalues their currency. It could. But part of the reason they can do that is inflation is so low right now that generally the rule is if I put money in an offshore bank account or put money in an offshore vehicle that doesn't collect interest, uh, inflation will eat away at the value of my currency. So by not paying taxes, I, I only gain so much value until I can reinvest it somewhere else and pay taxes to someone else or find a, some other investment vehicle to do it, which pays less taxes or no taxes, which is, I mean, the U.S. tax code, if you know how to use it, it's designed for you. If you own capital, the U.S. tax code is made for you. If you own a bunch of houses, you won't pay any taxes. You can make a whole bunch of money, pay no taxes, and, and maybe even get grants, depending on what you're going to do. Uh, so you know, if you listen to this, realize billionaires don't pay income tax the same way you and I do. And if you're a billionaire listening to this, can I have some of that cash? Um, but yeah, in reality, billionaires don't pay. Extremely wealthy people do not pay taxes the same way that we do. It's just, it's it's a fallacy when you see, well, the income tax level for them is low. Yeah, but they don't make a billion dollars a year in income. That's insane. Most of their assets are illiquid and they keep them illiquid. Uh, and most of the value they have is in is in property, in assets, not in capital. That's why cash becomes almost a liability for you uh, as opposed to an asset because it's acidic and eats away. So in order to, um, you know, the whole, ver- the whole reason to have taxes is to try to equalize that, to try to uh, prevent people from hoarding capital at the highest levels and to create, to prevent them from being able to influence government policy uh, to meet their in-state, to stop regulations that might be more advantageous for the American population, but less advantageous for them. So they created, you know, some form of of speech that is able to counteract uh, um, a regulation which is actually net positive for the world and or American population. So that is what's going on. So taxes are really just a way to equalize the playing field. You don't have to have them. And they actually, taxes are the way to stop inflation. So uh, monetary policy is really pretty weak, right? It's extremely weak, actually. The Fed lowering interest rates to zero. I mean, the interest rates in Germany are negative right now. Interest rates across the rest of the Western world and across the Western, the industrialized world. Uh, when I say Western, I really mean industrialized. So I'm not trying to be a uh, Europhile here or... Um, Asophobic, so I apologize if you get that impression. I'm not. Um, industrialized economies, uh, they they have um, 
most of them at current have negative interest rates because they're trying to get people to spend more money because they have no or low inflation, which is damaging in the future. You've got to have some inflation there because they think they have to pay their debts off, which they kind of do if you're in Europe. Because if you're in Europe, you have the euro, which means you now have to pay back somebody else's currency. It's not your. It's not based on your economy. Europe is in a really big pickle when you realize the value of modern monetary theory. And either they integrate more deeply or they get rid of the euro. But the middle ground they're on now is untenable uh, over the next probably 30 or 40 years. And it will lead to a just epic collapse of their society uh, or their economies because of it. So let's go back. and So let's talk a bit about this idea of, of, uh, of reducing inflation. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time on this, but taxes are a way to equalize the system in a way or attempt to equalize the system if you believe in socialism. Uh, if not, then they're just a way to prevent inflation. That's another way to look at it. I have taxes to take cash out of the system if there is inflation. Boom. That's it. That's all I need. If I say, okay, well, um, I'm going to uh, dump a whole bunch of currency, a whole bunch of money in the economy, and now I have to uh, now I have inflation building up. How do you stop that inflation? Well, you increase taxes. By increasing taxes, you take more capital out of the system, you reduce inflation, you also slow the economy down. But by that point, you're probably already at full employment. So you have to hit some kind of stasis when you hit full employment. That becomes more difficult. Um, but if, as long as you have making productivity gains in the, in the employment uh, or in the economy and you're making productivity gains and you're at full employment, then your economy is doing great. Society is going to be better in the future. You're going to have more infrastructure. You're going to have more public goods. You're going to have more private goods. You're going to have a lot of new and valuable things for the population to go forward on. Now, uh, with all that being said, um, you know there are some questions that haven't been answered yet by modern monetary theory. Uh, such as how did stagflation happen in the 70s and in the early 80s? What did we do to fix that? We ran a deficit. That's how we fixed it, in case you're curious. But we'll, we'll, that's a, the question needs to be answered, I think, a little more acutely. Given time, though, I have no doubt that we will kind of come to the conclusion of, of exactly what helped us get out of the, the, the problem we were in, of stagflation. With all that being said, um, I think the the most... Uh, one of the, the basic things just to remember is a government, as long as it is funded inside of its with its own currency, is not a household. And you shouldn't think of it as one, right? If you do not pay your bills, someone will eventually come and take your stuff that you have had or will kick you out of your house. Or in worst cases, a man or a woman will come to your door with a gun, lock you up, and put you in a cage uh, by a judge's orders, right? So... Um, but we're not a family. We're not a house. We're not a, not a company. We're, you know, it's a government. It's a completely different idea. And if we continue to think about our budget and the way we pay for things, um, in, in the same sense, we'll always be behind the curve because it's not how um, we should think of things. We should be building new infrastructure. We should provide universal health care uh, to our population. Not free of charge, of course. There needs to be tax involved with it. And also we have to consider um, the capacity of our healthcare system. The healthcare system's capacity is, you know, not big enough to hold everyone. Then we need to think about that. It needs to be something we actually have a real discussion about going forward. Um, 
if if the reason that healthcare expenses are so high now is because there's a lack of capacity and that's just the market's way of, of moving in that direction, then we really need to have the discussion about increasing capacity in that market. How do we do that? I don't have an answer for you there, but we got to find a way to do it. Um, but this is this is kind of one of the fun, fundamental shifts I'm going to go through uh, in my view on politics in general. I don't think we have to repay our debts in the same way that a household does. And actually, in order to make new money, we don't have to even issue debts. The Treasury can just go in and create new new uh, funding through some of the features it can use with the Federal Reserve in order to create new currency. It doesn't have to issue a bond to do so. Or it can issue a bond and buy it itself. Um, it, it doesn't – none of that matters. It, it, it's, all, it's all money in the system anyway. And there's some great historical examples too uh, of actually this working. And, and historically, countries that had paper money, when they would tax their system, tax their, their countries, they wouldn't send the money back out, back in the circulation. They would burn it. Money would come in, they'd burn it in the back, and then they would, they would issue new currency if they needed to or new spending. That's how they would do it. They wouldn't actually – uh, credit accounts back. It just wouldn't make sense because it's their own currency. So the government has a monopoly on its funding, and it doesn't have to function in the same way that we think of ourselves as. It doesn't hold true for every country, of course. But for the United States and for major industrialized countries that own their own currency, uh, they, don't, they, will, they will not go bankrupt. You cannot go bankrupt in your own currency, and you can control inflation through fiscal means, not monetary means. Fiscal policy is not a budget. We should not think of it that way. We should think of it more as just fiscal policy. Um, and that's that's where I'm at. So with that being said, I, I find it more troublesome or more, more difficult to support candidates who still live in this austerity and mindset because we don't have to pay it back unless somebody else owned it. And this whole idea that China owns it, let's take this for a second, where would China get the money to buy T-bills at? Which is what you use to pay back the debt in. Currency has to come from somewhere. It's our currency, right? So anyway, it's a long conversation, but I, I, we, do not, we don't own a whole bunch of money to China. We don't owe a whole bunch of money to China. It's just insane. It, it's like this idea, like we're writing a check to China. It's not a real thing. Um, Okay, so this is going to end our podcast on modern monetary theory and why the U.S. is not a household and the budget needs to be thought of in a different way. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to air them um, uh, on the Facebook page. I'll be publishing this in different uh, avenues, venues soon. Uh, iTunes will come up and Spotify, a couple other ones. Right now it's on Podbean, but it's going to spread out because uh, that's the cheapest way to do it, so I'll do it that way. Okay. I hope you have a great day, and at some point I'll include some type of uh, music here, some motto that I have. Anyway, this is the end.